Father, we thank and praise you for Christmas. We thank you that at Christmas we can celebrate you, God the Son, taking on flesh, coming to live among us. And we pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds this Christmas, that we wouldn't slide into um, the way everyone else does Christmas, but you would help us to keep eyes fixed on you. We pray for us at the end of perhaps busy weekends and looking ahead to busy weeks. We pray that you would give us ears to hear what it is you're saying to us. We pray that you would speak to us, soften our hearts. And we pray that you would change us as we encounter you in your words. And we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Um, at At the heart of the Bible sits a question, sits a a conundrum that kind of unfolds as you go through the pages of Scripture. And it's the conundrum of intimacy with God. When um, when God made the world, he made it good, and he was intimately involved in it. And so there's this beautiful phrase at the start of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, it goes like this, It, it talks of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And he... It's a kind of tantalising idea. Maybe this was his habit, maybe this was the way things were. A picture of friendship between God the Creator and the people that he's made and in the creation that he's made. It's sort of the the icing on the cake of creation. Um, A picture of rest. Rest with God, rest with each other, rest with the creation. There's intimacy. And then as Adam and Eve walk out on God, as they eat from the tree, as they do the one thing they're told not to do, So they sin and so that intimacy with God disappears. Walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day is all gone. And he comes looking but they go hiding. You see we were made for intimacy with him. We were made to know him but from here on in in the Bible, Genesis 3 onwards, it's gone. They were banished from the garden. They were banished from his presence as sin came in. And as the story unfolds it's, it's confusing because you get these these tantalising glimpses of intimacy, again. You get promises of God being with his people in, in that kind of way, again, of him, again, kind of walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Promises to Abraham that say, I will be your God and you will be my people. Or as the people wander through the wilderness towards the promised land, each night they set up and at the very heart of the camp is the tent of meeting. The very heart of the people is God, represented through where they meet with him in this, in this camp. Or as the people of God, through the prophets, you begin to hear language of marriage, of intimacy, of God being like a bridegroom, and his people being like a bride. There's this sort of intimacy glimpsed again. And then there's still the problem of sin. So you've got these, these glimpses of intimacy going through, but then you've still got the reality of us wanting to do things our own way, of saying me first, of, of rebellion against him. And our sin and a holy God don't coexist together. They don't work. And so he establishes a sacrificial system. The sacrifices, they're, they're not sort of ways of us trying to force God to relate with us, but actually his kind provision of an ability to relate with him because sin is being dealt with. His initiative, his plan. And there's at least a level of intimacy possible because of the sacrifices. As 
sacrifices are made as the leaders come and place their hands on the livestock, as the high priest places his hands on the head of the goats or the bulls, as a man turns up at the temple with a lamb around his shoulders ready for sacrifice. There's no doubt why the animals are dying. They're dying in the place of the people. So there's a level of intimacy. There's still sin, but it's not walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day intimacy. And sin is still the issue. My problem, and I suspect your problem, is that we are, we are desensitised to sin. I think I've mentioned this illustration before, but um, as a father, we've, we've got four kids, and one of the things that you come to terms with is, is the stench of children. I'm going to be frank. Maybe it's hamsters in your house. Maybe it's decaying lunch boxes with banana skins that sit in the study for days. Maybe it's just smelly clothes around the place. Whatever it is, and you have to accept it. You just get used to it. You lose your, your revulsion at the smells. You get used to it. It's embarrassing. Someone comes around and they... Can you smell something in your house? Maybe. Sorry. Yeah, what is that? I mean, we just learn to live with it. You get desensitised to the smell. And, and our problem is we get desensitised to sin. And it's not such a big deal for us anymore. We, we've lost our sense of smell. Because we've lost sight of how good God is. And of what we're like. He is perfectly holy, clean, just, good, so good. And we're sinful. And so you've got these two streams going through the Bible. You've got this stream of sin and this stream of intimacy. And we're thinking, how are they going to sort themselves out? Are we ever going to be walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day again? And I think that's why Matthew makes such a big deal of Jesus in chapter 1. We see, we'll see his extraordinary birth from verse 18 to 25. But more than that, we'll see that his extraordinary birth reveals his extraordinary mission. And I think here we see something of the the conundrum solved. Something of that problem at the heart of the Bible is dealt with. Let me read to us from Matthew 1, verse 18 to 25. Page 965 if you have one of these church Bibles. Do follow it along with me. Matthew writes, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you have to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name, Jesus. Can you, 
Can you just imagine what Joseph must have thought when he, he heard the news, or perhaps Mary told him? We have a few um, engaged couples at Maudlin Road at the moment. Marriage arrangements in those days were very different from the kind of arrangements we have now. For, for a start, the majority of people in those days actually got married. They regarded marriage as an important thing, God's gift. They knew it just wasn't a piece of paper, but a, but, but a public declaration of lifelong commitment between two people, for better, for worse. But also that the, kind of the way that they did it was slightly different. So in those days, Jewish girls would often be pledged to be married to a boy from an early age, maybe even, even 12 or 13 years old. This engagement period would, would last for about 12 months. It was legally binding. They were called husband and wife, but they didn't live together yet. The girl would still live with her parents. There'd be no intimacy until the end of the year. Then there'd be maybe a seven-day wedding ceremony and after that a party and then they would live together, husband and wife. And so put yourselves into the shoes of Joseph. He realises Mary's weight gain is not just overeating. She's, She's pregnant and he knows the baby is not his. He knows it for sure. And so verse 19 tells us, Joseph is in between a rock and a hard place. He's righteous, that is he is wanting to live faithfully to God's law and so he he plans to divorce her as the law told him to. It's perfectly within his rights to do that. He's righteous but also he's kind. So he wants to do it quietly. He's got no intention of hauling this young girl through the public law courts. Maybe just in the presence of two or three witnesses, he would write to a certificate of divorce and that would be it. As one person put it, his, his heart would be broken, but at least her reputation would be spared. He's a righteous man, but he's a kind man. And that's his plan until verse 20, when he sleeps. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You will give him the name Jesus. Because you will save his people from their sins. He wasn't expecting that. Notice verse 20. Notice how they describe Joseph, son of David. Which we saw last week is really important to Matthew. Do you remember the genealogy? Remember God's king was going to be a descendant of David. Verse 1. But how could Jesus, without a human father, claim such an honour? How could he be a son of David if by the end of the genealogy we switched on to Mary? How? Because of legal adoption. So Joseph wasn't Jesus' paternal father, but by adoption he became his legal father, which means he can be a son of David. I think actually that's what Matthew is really getting at in these verses. That's one of the key things he's making. He is, he is showing us this kind of unresolved tension at the end of the genealogy. We're asking, how is he a son of David if he hasn't got a human dad, really? If Joseph, the son of David, had said no to adopting Jesus, then we would be in trouble. But he's righteous. So he obeys. And so he does all that the angel tells him to do. I think it's worth pausing here. Um, this, this might all sound a bit far-fetched to you. Or this might all sound a bit far-fetched to your friends. Maybe you've got colleagues or family or neighbours or 
people you chat to and and they're thinking angels and virgin births and all that really? That's nice for Christmas, it's nice for carols, but is is that literal? I think it's a legitimate question. Is, is this really what happened? I think foundationally it's it's worth noting, we've said before, there's a clash of world views going on as we come and read passages like this. We, we live in the small corner of the world and the small corner of history where, where we don't really believe in, in miracles or the supernatural. In the Bible, God's not just there as a, an idea or a theory or a philosophical construct. No, he is real. He does real things. He, he really interacts with real people. But in our small corner of the 21st century, in this place at this time, for most people, God is not real. And the world is, if you push it, just here as a mistake, really. We're just accidents. And, and science is the answer to everything. And so I can't believe in miracles, people say, because that doesn't happen. Not in my world. But you see, the claim of the Bible is that God is there and real. And not just something or somebody that works for some people, but for everybody. Not just something to make life a bit less scary for for some, but he's active and he's at work. And he's real. He's wanting intimacy with the people that he's made. And so when we come across people, or perhaps in our hearts, when we think, miracles... Virgin birth and these kinds of things, can, can we really accept them? Recognise there's a clash of worldviews. God's real and he's active. And actually Mary's situation is unusual, of course, but in Bible terms, in a sense, it's not unique. God, God is the God of life who can bring life from barren wounds and so as you go through the pages of the Bible, as, as the story unfolds again and again and again, we come across people who, who have similar experiences. So maybe Abraham and Sarah giving birth to Isaac. Maybe Isaac and Rebecca giving birth to Jacob. Maybe Elkanah and Hannah giving birth to Samuel. Maybe Zechariah and Elizabeth giving birth to John the Baptist. As you, un- as you track the unfolding promises of the Bible... Through the pages of scripture again and again, God is there with a highlighter pen saying, note this baby. This is important. He is important. I am at work. I can bring life. I can answer prayers. I am good. I am in control. Trust me. Even into darkness I can bring life. It's an extraordinary birth. Matthew wants us to see how extraordinary this birth is. But the reason it's an extraordinary birth in a way is because he is there with the highlighter pen saying he's got an extraordinary mission. This baby is important. And as we said at the start, the story of Jesus, the mission of Jesus sits at the heart of this conundrum. This idea of intimacy despite our sin. So do you see the two names that Matthew speaks of and zooms in on in these verses. The first one is there in verse 21. Do you see you have to give him the name Jesus? 
because he'll save his people from their sins. And at the end of verse 25, he gives them the name Jesus. He's, he's faithful, obedient. He does as he's told. So, so that's what he's called. His name is Jesus. It's the name given by God the Father to God the Son. It wasn't just a popular name of the time. It wasn't just the top of the baby names for that year. It was his job description. Jesus means God saves. He will save his people. Matthew tells us what from, from their sins. And at this point, we don't know how that's going to happen. We know it's an extraordinary name, we know it's an extraordinary mission, we don't know how he will save his people from their sins at this point, but the child grows up and the cradle is swapped for a cross. And as he grows up, so his service stretches further down, as he dies in the place of his people. God's sense of smell is perfect. He can't just pretend sin is not there. He can't just ignore it. He is perfectly good and so he names his son Jesus because Jesus will come and deal with our sin. His anger against our sin. So they call him Jesus, but it's more than that as well. Do you see the other, not so much a name, but it's what he will be called. Verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. Now what's going on here? Well, the prophecy is from Isaiah 7, and we're doing Isaiah in the morning, but we've not done Isaiah 7 in the morning. Um, So a bit of context for this bit of Isaiah. Andy explained it this morning, if you were here or there. Um, This bit of Isaiah comes from a time when God's people in the land were split into north and south. And at this point, the north, Samaria has allied with their enemies, Syria, and they're about to attack the south where Jerusalem is. So you've got a big army planning to come down from the north to the south. They form this coalition. They're about to attack. And the big question is, what's the king going to do? What's King Ahaz going to do? You've got this huge army getting ready. What's he going to do? Is he going to trust God? Or trust himself, really? And by trusting himself, he makes an ally with a foreign king from Nineveh. He doesn't trust God. He makes a political deal. And Isaiah comes and says, well that's stupid, that's foolish because the Assyrian king is going to come and destroy this northern coalition anyway. There's another army going to come and deal with it all. Uh, But Isaiah comes to, to warn Ahaz, only God can guarantee your safety. And here is the sign that shows you God is with you. It's going to be a baby. It's going to be one from the line of David. His name is going to be Emmanuel. And gallons of ink have been spilt on that verse, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Andy helped us again this weekend last week think a little bit about Old Testament prophecy and how it works. And sometimes you have a picture of a mountain range, so you think, there's my mountain where I'm going, that is the answer to the prophecy. And you get to the mountain and you realise there's still another mountain behind it. And everything has collapsed into one, but it kind of stretches out. Well, so here in Isaiah 7, there will have been an immediate fulfilment, a close mountain. We don't exactly know what that will have meant, except we we can presume there's a young woman or a virgin who's going to be with child, who's going to be from the Davidic line, and his name will be Emmanuel. And that is evidence for Ahaz that God is with him 
in Isaiah 7. That is evidence that Syria and Samaria will not overthrow. This child, Emmanuel, at the time in Isaiah 7 says, Trust God, he is with you. But there's a further mountain in the distance as well, to whom this all points, and to whom is fulfilled in. Did you see you get the two mountains? The close mountain of Isaiah 7, back in Isaiah's day with Ahaz. There's a child that comes from the line of David that shows that God is faithful and will deliver. And despite the opposition and oppression from this northern coalition, God has got it covered. He's in control. It's good. First mountain. But then the second mountain, so this is the Isaiah 7 mountain and here's the Matthew 1 mountain. There's another child from the line of David. There's going to show you God is faithful and he will deliver despite opposition and oppression. They think from the Romans, but this child's name is Emmanuel. And it means God has got it covered. He's with you. Don't panic. They think it's from the Romans. Matthew says he's going to deal with bigger enemies than the Romans. He's going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with the enemy at the heart of the Bible. Which is then where Matthew picks it up. Here is the true Emmanuel. Here is the one who will come and through whom we shall see God live among his people again. Here is, here is God with us. Because he's Jesus, saving his people from their sins. So we can call him Emmanuel. Because God is with us. Here is Jesus dealing with the barrier of sin. Which means here is intimacy again with God. As he lowers himself, as he takes on flesh, as he comes to live on earth amongst his people. You could see him and touch him and speak to him and he had knees and he had elbows. It's what we call the incarnation. It's what Christmas is about. It's God with us. It's Emmanuel because he's Jesus and dealt with sin. But you know, as Matthew ends his gospel, as we move from chapter 1 to chapter 28, there's a very real sense in which he is still with us. Because of course Jesus has ascended now. He is not living on the earth now. So can we say, Emmanuel, God with us now? (coughs) Bodily, at least, he's not here. Not like in the Incarnation. But have a listen to how Matthew ends his Gospel. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely... I am with you always, to the very end of the age. You see, so he's not here in the bodily sense, at least not in the incarnation bodily sense, but he's with us now. He's with us as he equips us and he helps us and he encourages us and he guides us. He's with us by his Spirit As Jesus goes to the Father and then in Acts sends his spirit to be among his people and in his people. So do you see, because he's Jesus, he saves us from our sins. And because we've been saved from our sins, so he's Emmanuel, God with us. I think that's why Matthew puts the two together. Because he knows this conundrum at the heart of the Bible story. How do you have sinful people and a holy God together again? 
Is there ever going to be walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day? Well, in a sense, yes. Because sin has been dealt with once and for all. Of course, it looks ahead. If we're talking mountains, there's another mountain right in the distance as well, the Revelation 21 mountain, where we shall see him face to face. Where there's that intimacy of him, as Andy mentioned this morning, wipe away every tear from every eye. Where we shall be with him. That's the final mountain at the end of the story. That's the last page of the book. But this Christmas... Because it is Christmas. I'd love to urge you, if you get a chance, perhaps in your devotions, or as you're cycling around the place, or as you're chatting with your family, whatever it might be, to to think about these two names, and to not lose sight of them as you celebrate what Christmas is about. So remember Jesus. Remember he's come to, to rescue us from our sins. To rescue us from our rebellion and our pride and our self-sufficiency and our me-first attitude. Because the danger is, if we do Christmas like everyone else does Christmas, that, then those things are, are really quite big. As you're there queuing and Marks and Spencer's getting grumpy with people because they're taking too long. Or, or, or as you're fighting with Amazon trying to sort your presents out. And, and we start to do Christmas like everyone else and maybe we see our need of someone called Jesus ever more brightly. But remember too, he's Emmanuel. Remember there's an intimacy. Remember, God is with us again. So remember to enjoy his presence. In, in, presence C-E at the end. Not T-S at the end. Remember that, that you have the best thing you could ever imagine. Because you have God with you. Because your sin has been dealt with. And as we take the Lord's Supper in a moment, eat bread and drink wine, grape juice, remembering the length to which he went to deal with our sin, so that we can enjoy intimacy again with him.